We are in John chapter two, continuing in our series that we're calling Life in His Name. We're walking through this gospel uh, together. And as we come to this passage this morning, um, it's one of those stories that I believe is fairly well known. Um, it's not maybe as well known as some of the other stories, um, whether you grew up in church hearing stories or not. My guess is you probably have heard of like David and Goliath, right? You know about David fighting the giant and, and that. You've probably heard of Jonah and the great fish and, and, and this guy Jonah getting swallowed by a fish. You've heard of Joshua and walking around the wall and the Jericho wall falling. Those are all kind of, you know, there's even cultural references or other things that kind of come from that. Like we, we know about some of these stories. My guess is though that this, this story as well is kind of well-known, maybe not as well-known, but, but it's Jesus' very first miracle is what we're looking at this morning. Um, he turns water into wine. That's the first miraculous thing that he does. And my guess is that all of us, or most of us, have heard it. If you haven't, it's okay. We're going to go through it. It's a really great story. Um, But my guess is for many of us that we have not necessarily, we know about the miracle, but we don't know the significance of what it is other than that it was miraculous. It was very cool. It was, you know, showed his power. But there's so much more to it than that. And that is the thing that John is doing as we walk through this gospel together, right? He was writing with a very specific purpose, and, and hopefully by now you can say his purpose as well as I can, right? He wrote of these signs, he recorded these signs so that we would believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah, and that by believing we would find life in his name. And so certainly if that's his purpose, then the, this first sign, this first miracle that we come to today would have that purpose as well. It's meant to point us to him as Christ, as the son of God. And as I just stated, it has something for us this morning. There's something that God wants to teach us in this uh, this morning. So as we come to this, it's again, taking place at a wedding, not just a wedding, it's taking place at the feast of a wedding. And so we're calling the sermon this morning, Lord of the Feast, uh, because we're gonna see the way that God demonstrates his glory, his power, his ability, his working at this wedding feast. He is the Lord of the feast. I'd like to begin by just reading the passage in its entirety before we uh, study it together. Uh, You can follow along in your copy of scripture. John chapter two, beginning in verse one, it says this. It says, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum, along with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Let's pray that God would teach us as we walk through this passage uh, together. Uh, Lord, we have already sung, we've already, um, God declared that you are here. Lord, as we just declared, your presence is here. Lord, we want to see you, though. 
we know that you are here, God. We want to see you. And so would you give us eyes to see you in this miracle, in this sign, in this passage? God, would you teach us what you would have to teach us this morning? And Lord, give us hearts um, to respond. And God, we thank you for the way that you've made yourself known. Uh, without your revelation, we would have no knowledge of you on our very own. God, you have made yourself known to us. And so, God, we ask that you would do that even now as we, um, God, reflect, study, look at this together. Lord, we pray that you would teach us, that you would lead us, that your spirit would be um, working through it. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, let me give you the big idea. This is going to kind of carry us this morning. I like to do this. Um, you know, some of you maybe would ask why, why, why the big idea? I think, I think there's, there's lots of, you know, things that are taught in the passages, but there's kind of a main idea that sort of rises to the surface um, in each. And here's the big idea. I think that this sign, this miracle is teaching us this morning. It's this, is that everything changes when we see the glory of Jesus. Everything changes when we see the glory of Jesus. It says here that, they, that uh, Jesus did this miracle. He manifested his glory. That is, he made his glory visible. He showed his glory. And then the disciples believed in him. But that's not all that changed. Their belief certainly was transformed, changed. But there's more that is changing throughout the story. And we're gonna kind of see that together as we walk through. And so let's um, kind of go back. And as we like to do here, verse by verse, kind of line by line, let's walk our way through the passage this morning and see the way that Jesus's glory brings transformation and change. Um, on, uh, again, on verse one, um, it says this. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. All right, third day. Um, if you've been keeping track, John has been um, sort of following chronologically. He began with um, John the Baptist uh, baptizing. People, uh, kind of delegate was sent and they came. And it says that on the next day, he saw Jesus. On the next day, some disciples started following. On the next day, they went to Galilee. So there's been four days. And now it says on the third day. So this is following that fourth day on the third day. The way that the Jewish calendar, they, they measured time, this would have actually been two days. So it would have included the evenings. They kind of measured uh, by the evening. So that's, if that's confusing, don't get too bogged down on that. So this is kind of the sixth day, okay, that we've been kind of keeping track here. So the sixth day, there was a wedding. All right, so there's a wedding, and it's in Cana in Galilee. I know some of you love maps. I just want to make your heart happy. I want to show you a map just so we can kind of see where we're at. Where's Cana um, in Israel? Um, so Jesus has been, uh, we first met, you know, John the Baptist in Bethany beyond Jordan. We don't know exactly where that is. That's one of the proposed sites. There's another proposed site, which I actually think is, is more accurate, but it's further south, closer to Jericho is where that um, was taking place, but somewhere beyond the Jordan River. That's the Jordan River that's flowing um, south out of uh, the Sea of Galilee. That's the Sea of Galilee there on the top. And so Jesus made his way up to Galilee. He found Nathanael. That's the story that we looked at last week. And uh, Nathanael began to follow. And then it says that they were invited to this wedding. So Mary is there. Jesus is there along with the disciples. It doesn't say that he crashed the wedding. It says that he was invited along with the disciples, okay? So it would have been a good guy to, you know, that's someone who wanted to crash your wedding, but he was invited. Chances are he was invited because if you notice, Nazareth is not that far away. That's pretty close. And, and, and Cana is just a small 
rural village, probably a, you know, more of a farming kind of community. And so there was probably a lot of relationship crossover, like friends between both Cana and Nazareth. And so there's a good chance this was perhaps a relative of Jesus or Mary. Um, there was a good chance that it's, if not a relative, then maybe a close acquaintance, um, somebody that was known by Jesus. And so he's there in this wedding at Cana. At the end, we're going to see this kind of at the end, but they make their way to Capernaum at the north side of the Sea of Galilee, okay? So that's where we are. Uh, Let's continue on in our passage. It says that there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Uh, Now, we know her name. John never gives us his name. If we only had the book of John, only had the gospel of John, you would never know that her name is Mary. He calls her the mother of Jesus throughout the whole gospel. And so the mother of Jesus was there. That's intentional, I believe, especially in this passage. You're going to notice that nobody else except for Jesus is given names. The disciples are just referred to as disciples. The servants are just referred to as the servants. We don't know who the bride, who the groom, who the master of the feast is. We don't know any of them. We just know Jesus. I think that's intentional. We're gonna see why. So the mother of Jesus was there and Jesus invited uh, to, was also invited to the wedding along with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Okay, you and I might come to verse three and we're like, okay, not that big of a deal. I've been to plenty of weddings that either didn't have a bar or you know, the bar sort of shut down at a certain time. And so what's the big deal with the wine running out? Well, we gotta put ourselves in the time and in the situation. You have to understand that weddings were a huge deal. Huge deal. This was one of the greatest celebrations of someone's life. It was a big event like in the community, in the village. Still today, like we would say, weddings are probably one of the biggest parties. If you've gotten married, um, planning to get married, uh, that, that, that my guess is that was the most expensive day of your life. You've never spent that much on a party at any other point, and I don't think you'll plan to, okay? Like that's a big deal. And so what's happening there, also a big deal, except even a bigger deal. Uh, because what would happen is the wedding was followed by up to seven days of celebration. It wasn't just like one night, like, you know, what happens at weddings you know, typically it's like, you know, maybe three, four o'clock, sometimes earlier, like maybe one or two, right? And then you, you finish out the wedding, you make your way to the reception. Sometimes it's there. Sometimes you have to get in your car and go find, you know, the, you know it's easier now that there's GPS. Back in the day, it was like, where are we going? What are we, right? You get there and then what, what's happening? Everyone's hungry. They want food. So sometimes um, there's appetizers. Sometimes there's not. You can tell there's a little murmuring if there's not, right? We're waiting for the bride and groom, finish their pictures, come back, right? We want to see the bride and groom, but what do we want even more? We want dinner, right? We want dinner and then we want dancing. We want some fun. Like that's, that's kind of, there's a little flow that we have, but that's sort of it, right? There's just this reception and, and that's pretty typical for, for most of our weddings and then everyone goes home. Not so then. This would have lasted for, again, up to a week. This would have been close enough that, you know, people would have tended to the things that they were, were tending to during the day and then they'd come back to the evening for the festivities, for the celebration. And so this party is going. Uh, furthermore, it was the responsibility, not of the bride, and the bride's parents, it was the responsibility of the bridegroom himself to financially provide for the wedding. Sometimes betrothals would last for quite a while just so that, not just for the wedding, but that the bridegroom could get his finances in order for the home, to set up the home, the homestead. Oftentimes that meant waiting for an inheritance. So sometimes betrothals could last for, for quite a while, um, uh, kind of an engagement rather than the betrothal, but then they would get married and, and the bridegroom would provide. It was his way of uh, showing honor 
to the bride's family. It was a way of showing honor to the community and like everybody was invited. It's not just like a few close friends and a, you know, the, the kind of close immediate family members. No, no, the whole village would come out. And so especially in rural poor communities, I mean, this was again, the greatest celebration. And so you have to understand, if you don't get this, you don't get what the problem is, the way that this honor-shame culture would work is there was even potential lawsuit if the bridegroom did not show honor or give gifts like, in an adequate way. And so the fact that the wine is running out, like this is major catastrophe. Like not only is the bridegroom gonna be uh, dishonored, sort of shamed in this situation, but even the people in general, I mean, this is like a huge letdown. They've been waiting for this for a long time. This is the time when the community comes together and celebrates and rejoices around this, this covenant between a husband and a wife. And it's just this beautiful celebration, but it's all going to be ruined if there's no wine. Why? Wine represented celebration, festivities, life. There's a rabbinical saying that says, where there is no wine, there is no joy. There's no joy. So in that regard, if we're kind of reading that into it, when Mary, the mother of Jesus, comes. We don't know if she was in charge. It doesn't tell us that. Was she, did she have some official responsibility? Or is she just kind of helping out? Again, if it's a relative, maybe she's just kind of in the mix. But this happens. Huge catastrophe, huge disaster kind of pending. She comes and she says, they have no wine. And so again, in our ears, we might not think it's a big deal, but think, I mean, there's shame coming to the bridegroom. There is disappointment coming to the whole party. And really what it's saying, there is no joy. They have no joy. Again, John's always writing with these kind of double meanings in place. Jesus, upon hearing that, I mean, he looks and he sees, yes, there is no joy. There is no lasting joy that is present. That's kind of what's being implied and, and sort of said here uh, in this. But here's the thing. Notice the response. Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? And here's how we come to the first thing. We said, right, Jesus' glory changes everything. Here's the first way that his glory changes us. It's this, is that his authority directs my agenda. That is what is happening here in this place. Mary comes, brings this request to Jesus. The question is, why is she coming to Jesus? Well, my guess is if you had the son of God uh, living in your home growing up, Jesus probably had some pretty good responses and answers to questions and problems that would come up, right? Am I right? Like, yeah, I'm not off with that, right? And, and plus, oldest son, right? Mom going to oldest son, that's not uncommon. The other question is, where's Joseph? Joseph isn't mentioned. Well, most commentators would agree by this point in time, Joseph most likely has passed away. He is dead at this point. We don't see Joseph at any point in the Gospels, so most would agree that he, and again, life expectancy and kind of the age difference between husbands, wives, like it wouldn't have been that uncommon for Jesus um, to not have had dad at, in his 30s. Uh, so, Joseph is most likely passed away, so mom's coming to eldest son. Hey, son, there's a problem here. You usually are pretty good with problems. There's no more wine. What are we gonna do about it? And Jesus's response is, woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, if that kind of like doesn't sit quite right in your ears, um, you're catching a little bit of what the text is, is, is explaining. I don't know how it works in your house, in my house, if my kids call their mom, woman, that's not gonna go over so well, Right? <laughs> Like, hey, clean up your room. Woman, why would I do that, right? Like, that's not, <laughs> that's not gonna fly, okay? Like, that's not gonna, especially, especially the sun, right? Like, 
nobody's getting away with that, but especially. So if you're kind of like, hey, man, that's, that doesn't seem right, it's, it, it is not a typical term. But at the same time, it's not atypical. What that word woman, what, what Jesus is doing, there's, in, there's intentionality with his choice of that word. There's other words, more endearing words that he could use. He doesn't use those. This is a distancing term. It's not rude. It's not disrespectful, but it's not intimate. It's kind of like ma'am or, you know, the same way he would refer to any other. He refers to multiple other women throughout the text as woman in that way. Again, not derogatory, not mean, but it's not endearing. It's not intimate. What is he saying here? Well, he is distancing himself from his mom in that mother-son relationship. Things have changed. Remember, Jesus has been baptized. He's been tempted. He's now getting ready to start his public ministry. And what he's saying to Mary, he says, Mary, our relationship, though you're still my mom, I still love you. I still respect you. I honor you. It is not, that is not my governing authority. That is not who is guiding me. Again, not a non-enduring term. He uses the same woman, term woman when he's on the cross telling John to care for his mom. He says, care for this woman, right? Like he uses that, that sort of phrase, the same thing. So it's not an uncaring thing, but what he's saying is, is like, this is no longer, I'm not under your agenda, your plan. She's coming to him, asking him to do this. And he says, mom, I'm not under your authority. Why? Whose authority is Jesus under? What he's saying here is he's under the authority of his father. Not his earthly father, his heavenly father. He's like, I did not come to do your will, mom. I came to do the will of my father. He says, what does this have to do with me? Why would this concern me? This is a trivial matter. This is something that is not, you know, the core of my mission. This is not, you know, this could be a distraction for me. Why did Jesus come? Jesus came for the cross. He came to live, to die, to be resurrected, and to return again. That is the purpose of why he came. And so he's like, what does this wine have to do with me? Furthermore, we know that he's kind of relating it to that because what he says next, he says, my hour has not yet come. I love the way that John, like if you read John, if you've never read John before, you come to this. John doesn't impact that word hour at all. But what you're gonna find is we continue to go through. We're gonna see it in chapter six. We're gonna see it in chapter seven, chapter 12, chapter 13. Like hour is gonna keep coming up as we walk through this. Every time the word hour, it, 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 it communicates the sum of his, his cross, his death, his resurrection, his burial, his ascension. It's his mission, his purpose, his work. He's like, my time for my work has not yet come. The, the main reason why I'm here is not yet. And he's gonna say it multiple times. Again, chapter six, chapter seven, we're gonna see my hour's not here. My hour's not here. Later on in the, book, in the gospel, we're gonna see my hour is here. My hour has come. What's he referring to? He's referring to the cross. He's like, this does not have anything to do with my main mission, my main purpose. And then you see the response. We don't know, was there more exchange? We don't know. But verse five, his mother submits to that. And he says, she says to the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. She leaves it in his able hands. She doesn't know what he's gonna do, but she trusts him in that. Okay, what is Jesus trying to do? Again, very first miracle, very first sign that he's doing. I think he's making it very clear that he's not here for anyone else's agenda, but the agenda of the Father. And what he's doing is he's calling Mary to submit to his authority and for her agenda to line up with his agenda, right? That is what's going on right there. His authority directs my agenda. And I wonder how many times 
This isn't a bad request, right? Mary wasn't out of line for asking this. But how many times do we bring our agenda to the Lord and expect, desire, want, plead, demand that his agenda becomes our agenda? It's easy for us to do, right? There's things that we desire. There's things that we're, we're longing for. There's things that we're wishing, hoping, needing. Some of us have legitimate needs, legitimate things that you're calling on the Lord for and you're waiting for him to act. What this text is saying to us is that his authority needs to shape our agenda. We can come with our agenda, but we need to allow him to shape it. Can I just ask you, is there any place that maybe you're seeking the Lord for, that you're going after, that you want God to work in, that maybe you need to submit your agenda to his authority? Right? I think that there are places that we, we get out of line, that we want him to adjust to us, not the other way around. And what Jesus is saying, he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? I'm not on your timetable. I'm not on your agenda. I'm here for my mission. My authority comes from the Father. My hour has not yet come. And Mary, we see, he says, do whatever he says. She submits to him. She sets aside her agenda in that, trust him in that. I think it's worth noting here, this is, this is one of the primary passages that the Catholic Church will point to as the reasons to pray to Mary, right? The Catholic Church teaches that you can go to Mary and Mary will bring your request before God on your behalf. Understanding what we just talked about, you can see how off that teaching is. Listen, church, Jesus tore that curtain in half. He is our intermediate between God the Father. We have to go to nobody else, no priest, no Mary. We go to Jesus we go to God himself through the work and power of Jesus Christ. There is no one else that we have to go through or between. In fact, anyone else will just get in the way. See, Mary is a sinner in need of a savior just like you and me. In that moment, Jesus is correcting mom, again, lovingly, caringly, not out of line, but firmly, right? Do you see it there? Do you see it? He's trying to say, listen, you need to align with me. You don't understand my purpose and why I'm here. Your agenda needs to submit to my authority. That's the first way, the first thing that changes when Jesus' glory is seen. Let's continue on. Look at verse six. Let's get to the miracle here. Verse six, it says this, there were six stone water jars. Those had less impurities than the uh, kind of ceramic jars. And so there's stone jars. Uh, they were therefore the Jewish rites of purification. So there would have been um, you know, a lot of needs for cleaning of utensils, cleaning of hands, and all this purification. This would have been part of the rituals um, and, and it would have definitely been taking place in these ceremonies. So these six stone jars are here. Each of them, it says, filled with, or could hold up to 20 or 30 gallons. So you got your math down. Uh, that's 120 to 180 gallons is being contained there. That's important. What does Jesus say? He says, fill the jars with water. The servants did whatever he told, right? That's what Mary said. So they did it and they filled them to the brim. So we're talking like 180 gallons of water here. Now he said, take some out and take it to the master of feast of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted, notice what it says, the water now become wine. So at some point after that water was placed in there, before it was taken to the master of the feast, Jesus worked a miracle. He transformed it 
It didn't taste like wine, didn't look like wine. It was wine. He transformed it into wine. You and I know that there's a process to wine that doesn't just happen. There's no like kind of magical thing that you kind of add to wine. Wine is produced through time and fermentation and like there's a process to it. He did all of that miraculously. And it wasn't just any kind of wine. Notice what happened. The master of the feast didn't know where it came from, but the servants did. They're like, we know what just happened. We know where this wine came from. He doesn't know, but he calls the bridegroom and he says, hey, come here. He's like, everyone usually serves the good wine first. What's he saying there? Well, when the palate is like the most sensitive before there's been food or other drink consumed, like that's where the good wine is tasted. So you can experience it, you can know it. And he's like, usually then the, uh, the poor wine comes out after that. You're guilty of that as well, right? People come over to your house, they eat a little bit more than you were expecting. What are you doing? You're going to the snack drawer, you're going to the pantry. You're like, well, I guess we have these. We opened them last week. I think they're still good. You know, like you're, you're kind of pulling things out. Like he's like, usually that's what happened. But he's like, look, what have you done? You kept the good wine until now. He's like, this is the best wine I've ever tasted. This is amazing. He's blown away. And so he calls the bridegroom, declares, this is amazing wine here. It says, this is the first of his signs that Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and the disciples believed in him. Here's the second way that we see Jesus change, his glory changes and transforms. It's this, his power impacts my ordinary. Again, he's at a wedding, as special as it is, it's still just an ordinary event. And what did he do though? He used ordinary ritual jars of purification for this. He took a mundane sort of, again, as massive as the problem might be, it's still just kind of an ordinary thing and he intersected with it and his power impacted it. And when he did it, he was trying to do it for a purpose. Notice what he used for this miracle. It says, it's, it's, it's important note, right? John takes the time to tell us it was the Jewish rites of purification, these ceremonial basins. What is Jesus saying in doing that? He's saying that, that, that the, but there's no need for those anymore, right? Like you don't have to be purified by this washing anymore. Why? Because Jesus purifies. And so he's taking the old things and he's filling it with something new. He's filling it with the wine of new creation, He's transforming the ordinary. His power is at work here in this place. And notice, like, I, I think, I think the, the, the reason or how we get there is because zero time is taken with the how. Aren't any of you curious how? Like, did he say anything? Did he do anything? Like, they filled it up, and then it just says, the water became wine. It doesn't tell us how. Like, I would like to think that there was like some sort of curtain, you know, and Jesus is kind of, you know, like Shazam, you know, some sort of thing, like wine or something. Like there's, you know, something that happens, but it's none of that. It just says that it became wine. Not because it wasn't cool or, or, or you know, miraculous. It was because that's not the point of why John is telling us. He's telling us because he wants us to see the purpose of it. It's not on the how. The focus is on the why. Why did he do it? Well, because he's trying to show his power through my ordinary. And what a good reminder that it is. I think it's worth noting, this is wine. Um, sometimes I think, you know, different groups, people over time has tried to kind of explain it away and oh, it's just grape juice or it was un, you know, non-alcoholic or something like that. There's nothing that would indicate that. They had alcoholic beverage in that that is wine. But let's be super clear about this. We live in an area that is plagued with alcoholism and drunkenness. And so the Bible, the Bible is not down on drinking alcohol. It is very clearly down on any form of drunkenness, whether a little drunk, a lot of drunk, 
Intoxication is prohibited by God. That was the case in the Jewish way. That was the case here, made clear in Ephesians chapter five. It says, do not get drunk with wine. That is debauchery, but instead be drunk or be filled with, be governed by the spirit. So you could say we're not to be filled with spirits, we're to be filled with the spirit, right? And uh, that, is, that is it. And so, you know, this is not, we're not gonna kind of get into all of that now. I think there's plenty of good reasons. I'm not saying that like this, is, this text, just to be clear what it's not doing, it's not encouraging us to drink and it's not saying that we can't drink, okay? So I'm not saying, oh, Pastor Dave said we can drink, let's go off and drink. Like that's not what I'm saying, but I'm also not saying that it doesn't say we can. I think you need to seek out the Lord. You need to see there's maybe a lot of good reasons why you might want to abstain, why you should abstain. But I also don't want us to fall in the trap of taking the text further than it says and trying to explain away some of those things. If you have questions about that, happy to explore that more. But that's, I think it's worth noting here what this is. This is wine. And it was very good wine. Not the box wine, not the cheap wine, not the like, you know, Trader Joe's wine. This is like good wine, what Jesus made here. It says that he kept the good wine until now. But back to this, this power impacts my ordinary. Here's the thing. Jesus was able to take this mess caused by the bridegroom and use it for his greater mission. God can use our missteps, our mistakes, our poor planning, our lack of foresight, our ordinary, and he can use, do it, some extraordinary things through it. Do you believe that, church? Do you believe that he cares about your ordinary? I just want to encourage you, he does. His power can impact our ordinary. This week, Levi was awake in the middle of the night with a cough. And he was coughing, couldn't stop coughing. It was bothering him. He got up. Now it's bothering Bree and I because now we're awake. It's the middle of the night. You know what I did? I, we gave him some medicine. We tried to you know, put him back to bed, calm him, soothe him, do whatever we could. But I prayed. I said, God, could you take away this cough? Would you allow him to go to sleep? something semi-trivial. At the moment, it didn't feel super trivial. I really wanted to go back to sleep. There was a lot of selfishness in that prayer. But, but, but you know what? I know that God cares about the ordinary. And so I brought that to him. I took that to him. And I just want to tell you that, that, that God cares about your ordinary, okay? He cares about the little things of your life. He was willing to use this mission or use this, this, this misstep for his mission. His power impacts the ordinary, the plain, the common. And some of you are praying about some ordinary things. You have some just basic needs, some simple needs, some things that you're seeking the Lord after. Can we just be encouraged or be reminded of that we're not alone in that? Anyone praying for something just kind of ordinary, asking God to work? Anyone? Hold up your hand. Let me see. Yeah, look around. All of us, we're like, we're praying about some ordinary things. Can I just encourage you? God cares about those things. He can use that. He can work in that. Sometimes those are the things that actually show us all the more clearly that he is present and that he is working, the way that he shows up in the ordinary. And can I just encourage you that when he does, don't sit on that. Don't just kind of keep that to yourself. Share that, broadcast that, thank God, praise God for that. Acknowledge and see where God works in the ordinary. This is just a wedding, a simple problem, and God uses it to teach an incredible lesson. What's the lesson? Let's keep going. We see it here. Let me take you back to verse three. I kind of pointed this out when we came to it, but let me just kind of use this in our context. Verse three, it says, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Remember, where there's no wine, there's no joy. They have no joy. It's a major problem, major shame coming. Go down to verse 10. Fast forward, wine has been provided. 
not just like a small amount, 180 gallons. He said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely in the, wine, the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This was the first of his signs that Jesus did at, in Cain, uh, at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and the disciples believed in him. Here's the third way um, that Jesus changes things. Uh, his glory shows up and changes is this, is that his provision satisfies my longing. Jesus was meeting a need they didn't even know that they had. He's pointing to his ultimate provision for a need that they have a longing for. Notice what, Jesus, what John calls this. It says this is the first of his signs. That's a really unique word. We said that the other gospels, which are called the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they have words for miracles. They never use this word. This is unique to Luke. Only Luke, or sorry, only John. Uh, only John calls it a sign. The other word, miracle, which is used in the other gospels, speaks to power. It produces awe. This word that John chooses, and this is the word he uses throughout. He, this is his word for all of Jesus' miraculous works, this word sign. What it is, is it's, it's a revealing, it's a pointing to something greater. It's a revealing of God's character, his nature. What does a sign do? It directs us to the thing. Like nobody sees a sign. You're on your way to like Noah's Ark. You're, to, you're like, get kids loaded up, going there. Maybe you're just going there yourself. I go there. I would go there. I don't need kids to go to Noah's Ark. I love water slides. You see all the signs on the way. You're, no one's like excited. Oh man, there's a sign for Noah's Ark. Let's, this is it, right? Like the sign's only so helpful in that it's pointing to where the ultimate destination is. It gets you there. It points to there. It tells of what's coming. This is what it is. This, this is not meant to be this, this like, okay, Jesus has done this. We're done. We're good. It's pointing to what is yet to come. Well, what is yet to come? There's so much going on here, so much that we can kind of point to. Let me try and unpack it for us. Remember, I said this happened on the sixth day. I don't want to lean too much into this because I think it's easy to get too far down symbolism or allegory or some of this. But isn't it kind of interesting that John opens with the same language of creation? How does John open his gospel? He says, in the beginning... In the beginning was the word, right? How does the creation story begin? In the beginning, God, right? So we have this creation language. Well, what happens on the sixth day? On the sixth day, man is created. Man and woman are brought together. That would be a wedding, is it not? Like, like here we have like this new creation, this new uniting. Here is a wedding, but I don't think it's stopping there. I don't think it's just pointing back to kind of creation. I think the ultimate sign is pointing forward to what is to come. Do you know how the church, the bride, is reunited with the bridegroom in eternity? Do you know what it is? It speaks of the wedding feast of the Lamb. In Revelation, it speaks of the church, this reuniting, this reuniting of God with his people, his redeemed people. It's, it's a wedding feast. And so it speaks about this wedding feast. And so I think what we're meant to do, the reason, I told you there's a reason why there's no names in this passage. I think it's meant to point us toward the ultimate wedding feast that is coming. Right? Because at that wedding feast, who is the bridegroom? Jesus. Jesus receives his bride. Who's the master of the feast, the Lord of the feast? It's Jesus. Jesus presiding over the feast. Who is, uh, who is overseeing all of it? It's God the Father. Right? Who's the bride? It's the church. And then what do we see there? We see that there's an abundance of, of provision, blessing, joy, food and drink, being enjoyed, celebration, that is coming. That is the wedding feast. And it's not just for a week, it's for all of eternity. 
I think it's interesting that Jesus produces 180 gallons. There's no way they went through all of that. There was more than enough to go around. Again, Jesus is trying to say, listen, I am the bridegroom. I am providing. I am preparing a place. Jesus, when he said that he was going for, do you know one of the things that Jesus is doing? He is preparing for that wedding feast. What did we say was the bridegroom's purpose or what he would do before this wedding? He was to prepare so that when all the guests came, when everyone showed up, when the bride arrived, that there was plenty of provision, plenty of celebration. Jesus has been preparing that feast for a long, long time. And he's still preparing it. He's preparing that place for us. He is getting that ready. And there will be no wine that runs out, right? There is no wine. That will not be said at the wedding feast of the Lamb. There will be plenty for all. It is such a beautiful, amazing picture of what is to come. And here's the thing, here's the thing. If we're honest, we often seek to fill our longing with all the wrong things, right? We look in all the wrong places, whether it's that promotion, whether it's that relationship, whether it's our family, those kids, that education, that status, that vacation, that thing, whatever it might be, we're chasing all these things. We're longing after things and we seek for that. And what Jesus is saying is that his provision, he is the provision for the longing that you and I have. He satisfies. There is a longing in our souls and he brings it. And so if you're looking for joy, I think if we're honest, right? If we're honest, I think when we're in our teen years, even in our 20s, there's this idealistic kind of hope on life as we get older and older. Some of you can attest that some of the things that you thought once would satisfy, that you thought once would kind of bring the joy, don't. You arrive at the thing that you've been chasing after forever, and what does it do? It just kind of lets you down. Why? Because this earth was never meant to satisfy. And so that's why I see sometimes as people get older, they get more and more discouraged because they're not finding the joy they're looking for. All the things they've been chasing after aren't providing the satisfaction they're looking for. Can I just tell you, those things were never meant to satisfy the longing for joy that you have. Jesus speaks about joy later in this book. We're gonna come across this, but in John chapter 15, 11, he says this, these things I have spoken to you. Why? That my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Jesus came to bring us his joy. He wants your joy full. He wants it full from him. He goes on in another place, John 16, 22, it says, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will Rejoice, and no one, no one will take your joy from you. Again, no one will say there is no wine. He is providing. His provision satisfies my longing. Listen, our longing for joy is found in the presence and person of Jesus Christ. We're just saying that, right? We want the presence of the Lord. We want the presence of his spirit here. That is the thing that provides the joy that we are seeking. And it's not gonna come from anywhere else. Let me show you the last thing. Let's not throw this away. Verse 12 is actually kind of helpful for us. It says this, after he went down to Capernaum and his mothers and his brothers and his disciples, they stayed there for a few days. Here's the last way that Jesus' glory changes. His mission shapes my purpose. His mission shapes my purpose. You see his mom, his family, the disciples, they're now on mission with Jesus. They're following Jesus. Wherever he's going, we're going. Whatever he's calling me to, I'm going to. His mission shapes my purpose. I wonder, do you allow, have you 
given permission, have you invited God's purpose to shape your, or God's mission rather, to shape your purposes, your financial resources, your gifting, your time, the things that God has given you, blessed you with, do you allow his mission to shape those? I'm gonna tell you when you follow him and when you are on mission with him, it's the very best place that you can be. I know that, and I've shared this before, but you know, we just celebrated our sixth anniversary last year, and so I'm reminded of kind of the adventure of planting a church that it is. I have the opportunity of working with both um, encouraging, coaching, uh, training, assessing church planters. I get to see the process like all over again. It's kind of like Groundhog's Day. I get to like, like relive it through them and kind of watch, and I'm like, there's parts that were so sweet and so fun, and then there's a lot of it that I'm like, man, I don't want to go back to that. That was so much work, so hard, so scary. Right? But some of you know, I mean, my, my family, we felt the call to church planning. We felt God asking us to step out in faith and, and, and move our family and go through a residency of church planning, not knowing where we were going to plant. And we heard very clearly from the Lord. He directed us toward Madison, Wisconsin. Listen, we don't have any family here. We did. They all moved away. They left us. They're lost, right? No. We miss them. We, we would love to be by family. We love our family, but they all moved away. And we have no family here. And, and as cool as Madison is, as great as the lakes are, as great as like that farmer's market and the cheesy bread and, you know, the, all that, um, it's not quite as cool, you know, February, March, but I'm okay with it. You know, I actually don't mind it that much. I, I really don't. But here's the thing. I'll be honest. The only reason that we're here in Madison is for the mission that God has called us to. We're here for the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's it. Like, we love all of you, but we're here for you. Like, we're, we're here because we want to do this with you and we want to reach those who don't yet know. If you're here and you've received and heard the gospel, that's why we're here. We're here so that people would come to know the transforming power of Jesus Christ. That is the purpose that we've been called to. And I just want to tell you, when you align your purpose with his mission, it is the best place that you can possibly be. We wouldn't trade it for anything else. We have no desire to go anywhere else until he calls us on. I don't think he is. Don't worry. I'm not saying, I'm not, not announcing anything or whatever, but like he has us here right now and we're here on mission with him and that is the greatest thing. And I would just tell you, if you're here as you are, like you're here in Madison, sometimes people are like, man, I feel like I need to go somewhere else or do something else or whatever. Madison can be a transient city. I think sometimes it's sad to say goodbye. Can I just speak to that for a second? It should be good or hard to say goodbye. Like if we're celebrating every time people leave, like, yes, they're no longer here. Like we're doing something wrong, okay? So like it's hard to say goodbye. We see people come and go here in the city, right? How many people have you seen move away or, or that you've been a part of our church and then they get called on to other things or go other places? I just want to tell you that while you're here, as long as you're here, you're on mission here, God has a purpose for you here in this city, in your neighborhood, in your cul-de-sac, in your apartment, in your dorm room, like wherever you're at, God has something for you there. And his mission shapes my purpose. We see this response and that's what we're going to continue to see. I mean, these disciples, they follow his, even his family, they, they question at times, but they follow him. They allow that to shape him. When they see his glory, it says his disciples did what? They believed in him. And in believing, they found life in his name. They found the joy. They found the purpose they were looking for. Let's pray.